Welcome to the Air Combat Simulation Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Together with content creators, mission builders, experts, and enthusiasts, we explore the comprehensive world of combat aircraft simulation. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the Air Combat Simulation Podcast. Uh, we're creating this podcast to uh, kind of do a round-robin or, or roundtable discussion about all things air combat simulation. We're going to have different guests here and there uh, through the episodes. Uh, some people will join, some people will leave, but um, hopefully we can get a bunch of community members involved in the process and uh, kind of make this a, uh, a very community-driven podcast and and get everybody's opinions on all the things happening in air combat simulation, whether it be DCS, IL-2, or maybe some things we don't know about and we can, we can learn about them together. So today we have a very, very large crowd. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll just call your name out. You guys can introduce yourself and uh, tell them where, where they might know you from or not know you from, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. So today we have uh, Baltic Dragon. Hello, guys. Uh, you might know me, you can probably know me if you do, from the uh, third-party campaigns for this year's, and I'm also part of the uh, Fighter Pilot podcast team. Awesome. We have Dutt from the Alert 5 podcast. Hey, guys. How's it going? Nice to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. We have uh, Red Kite. Hey, Red Kite. Hey, uh, yeah. I mean, most of you probably know me from my YouTube stuff. Good to be here. It'd be interesting to do this. We have uh, Scooby. Uh, that's also known as Rob, and you probably don't know me from anywhere, but I'm glad to be here anyway. <laughs> Scooby is part of the uh, Fighter Pilot Podcast team as well. And uh, we have Sport. Hey, Sport. Hey, guys. Also here from the Alert 5 Podcast. Happy to be part of this. We also have Tricker. What's going on, everybody? Tricker here from the Alert 5 Podcast. Great to be here. And our uh, guest today for our main topic of discussion uh we have vincent jello aiolo from the fighter pilot podcast hey vincent indeed glad to be here and jabbers did you tell us who you are oh me yeah sorry forgot <laughs> this is uh i'm jabbers uh from youtube and uh splash one gaming discord and various other places where i hide out awesome we're gonna go ahead and provide some uh listener q a via our various platforms we're going to have something on facebook uh we have our own discord and uh we'll have an email address and you can find all that stuff in the show notes so if there's anything you had a question on uh during the show and we didn't cover it you can go ahead and email us or message us on any of those platforms and uh we'll try to get an answer out to you and if you have any feedback those will also be the appropriate places to post that as well our show is usually going to go in a specific format unless uh you know the topic deems otherwise but we'll usually cover some news in the flight sim combat world and then we'll do some listener q a so again if you post some questions and we feel like they're something that a much more broad audience might want to know about we can go ahead and cover them on the show and then we'll have our main topic and after the main topic if there's anything ad hoc that we want to talk about some sort of community event or 
spotlight uh, one of our members or maybe there's some new hardware out. We'll go ahead and cover it then at that time as well. So let's go ahead and jump into the first part of the show. and We'll talk about the news. Uh, the JF-17, which was released on December 4th, it's been well over a month now. Um, what do you guys What do you guys feel? Do you guys think it was a successful launch and all around good module? Did it have any huge issues? I mean, I'll start it off. So uh, for the JF-17, I think it was an excellent launch. Me and Sport flew it together uh, multiple times and uh, has tons of weapons, JDMs, JSALs, uh, air-to-air capability. I think the JF-17 is great. Just on uh, multiplayer, didn't have any RWRs. You couldn't find out or you didn't, you didn't know if anybody was uh, shooting missiles at you. Yeah, that was definitely a little bit of a stumbling point, but I agree with you. I think that the uh, the JF-17 overall was a great release um, from a systems development standpoint. I think it was very well polished. Um, I think they still have a little ways to go with some of the texturing, which isn't their fault. I understand that one of their uh, artists was in the hospital recently, um, but overall, I was very impressed with it, um, especially considering some of the other early access releases that we've gotten. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you guys there. I think a lot of those issues that they had were multiplayer only, if if memory serves. I haven't I haven't used it in the past couple of weeks, but did, did a lot of that stuff get resolved? Have you guys tried it much more recently? I believe because of the um, Russian uh, Christmas Orthodox holiday, some of the uh, updates to DCS have been delayed, so I don't think all of them have uh, been put in yet. Yeah, so they initially updated quite a bit of stuff, but uh, with the Russian Christmas thing going on that Sport talked about, a lot of the updates have been pushed off and nothing new has come out yet. And we also had the uh, the Kiowa, which got, uh, I believe it got a, a, a pretty good stream going. I didn't get a chance to catch it with the holidays and anything. Did, did any of you guys get to uh, to check it out? I got a, uh, had the luxury of watching more and I saw of it. They've, uh, they've done some really cool things with it. Like you can drop out uh, smoke grenades. You've got a bunch listed on your dash and you can click on them to drop them, which I think is a really nice little uh, feature for anyone trying to do ground uh, air support. So I suppose forward air controller roles in a multiplayer environment. That's a pretty cool feature. I was going to say, I didn't really see any of the uh, Twitch streams because I was uh, flying at the time, but uh, I know Helgato. And a few of the other big streamers put out a lot of videos. And I know that they got tons of views. And I heard all positive things about the Kiowa. That's really cool. I can't wait to try that one. Yeah, they've put quite a lot of work into the uh, the system. It, it seems surprisingly complete as well. Like uh, the navigation system, there's a whole range of little bits you can play around with, add reference lines, navigation, and then export it and then send it to your wingmen over a, a file, say, on Discord to send your rest of your flight to then import into their aircraft. Well, that's interesting. When's it expected to be released? I don't know that we had that information given to us at all. I would hope this year. Yeah, I think that's always one of the things that's interesting to me as a relatively new person in the DCS community is always, I think there's this uh, uh, comment where everything is about two weeks. Uh, And at first I thought that was real. (laughs) I really thought it was two weeks and I was very excited. Uh, But that turned out not to be the case. Well, it's funny you bring that up, Rob, because I was actually thinking about that exact topic recently and it seems that the the uh, gestation period for modules in dcs is somewhere in the two to three year mark um past like initial announcement uh some developers are able to get them out a little bit quicker but aren't maybe as well developed um and others take a little bit longer but it actually that seems to be a rough um 
rule of thumb there. Yeah. What was the top cat? It was like uh, five years sport. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the module that got me into DCS in the first place was the promise of a Tomcat. And uh, that's been what, four years now. Yeah. So what is that? How much does that have to do with like funding or just the company's like infrastructure? I'm guessing it has a lot to do with uh, time because most of the third party developers are not doing this kind of stuff full time. They're doing it part time. So, you know, you work on it when you can and things come up and, and then on top of that, you're probably staffing. Like how many people can you put on your staff and, you know, actually, I don't know that you want to say make money on it, but not lose money. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was very interested. To, I mean, I, I guess I always assumed that these are just full fledged companies that had full time employees and all that, but I think it's, you're saying they have part time employees and they're just kind of when they can get it done kind of thing or am I it wrong? It seems to be that way. Yeah. Okay. It seems to be that, you know, at least most of them start that way. Yeah, it seems to be that way. And I think the biggest thing is uh, research, like research and development. That takes the longest because you got to contact all the museums and get all the uh, sound bits and everything like that. So I think that's like the biggest thing is just doing research. Yeah, and I've done like my own, you know, hobbyist game development in the past. And uh, when you sit down and actually figure out what you need, like like a, a typical game for me would just be actual gameplay and, you know, take some 3d models from somewhere and put them in and, and I'd be done. But if you were to actually sell a game, you got to add music and you got to add sound effects. And I, I didn't have any of that stuff. And I don't even know where to start for that stuff. So like that list continues to grow and you start realizing how much more stuff you need past just the simple, uh, implementation. And then I think that gets lost with a lot of people not realizing what's actually involved. Yeah. And I, I would just say that, you know, when it comes out and they release, uh, for example, the F-14 and the amount of detail and time and effort and everything goes into it. I always find it fascinating to see people squawking about how much uh, they charge for it. But, oh, my gosh, five years. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty amazing. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty amazing endeavor that they have to go through just to get something like that out. And it's, you know, I think it's actually pretty cheap. I guess we could maybe at some point invite some of the third party devs and, and have an episode about that. That might be interesting. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I was going to say, we have Baltic Dragon here. Like, how long does it take you to get your campaigns ready? I mean, you put a lot of time into your scripts and everything like that. It's probably around a year or something for a 15, 16 mission campaign. So I can imagine how much more it is to create a full model module. And I think that's the big takeaway is that, you know, these uh, these developers are literally trying to build a real airplane in ones and zeros and and replicate it and simulate it in such a fashion that when you get in, it functions to a reasonable expectation like the real thing. Um, so if you look at a real aircraft manufacturer and how long it takes them from the announcement of an aircraft um, to the actual first flight, for example, uh, can be several years. And they're bending metal and they're, they're programming and they're doing all this other stuff. So these developers have, have quite a, a large task in front of them. So to expect anything like the Kiowa, going back to what we were just talking about, it might be a little bit of time until uh, we actually get our hands on it. Did you just call it a Kiwa? Yeah, I was going to... Is that is that French? Can you yeah, it, it, it's it's say, is that French? quinoa, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that an organic helicopter? <laughs> or I only like my helicopters vegan. That's awesome. All right, well, let's, uh, let's continue on here. We got a lot to cover, or at least a lot planned to cover. So... Uh, 
the new year started off with a actually two newsletters that were pretty packed with information. Uh, one of those was the uh, Marianas Islands map. The uh, map's supposed to be 400 by 400 kilometers, probably mostly water and all that space. But uh, I know Guam is in there and various other islands. And uh, I, I think that personally, I think that that might be an interesting map from a multiplayer perspective. And I, I actually really look forward to seeing what a lot of people come up with because I, I myself can think of a few scenarios that might be really cool. Uh, I don't want to give them away just in case I want to make something myself, but you know, do you guys have any uh, other thoughts on that trigger? Maybe I thought it was a cool map. And uh, I think I called it in one of my episodes on the alert five podcast that maybe Guam was going to come out. Uh, I'm kind of curious. If those uh, jello has ever flown there. Actually, uh, when I was at the weapon school in 2008, we went out there and did a Strike Fighter Advanced Readiness Program, or SVARP, for Air Wing 5 in Japan. And then two years later, I was in Air Wing 5, and the weapon school came out, and we did another SVARP in Guam. So, yeah, good times. Very cool. Very cool. The uh, the other thing that got a big update recently uh, was the textures for the, I guess, I guess the textures and the model for the uh, A10C uh, Warthog, right? And they uh, announced that there's going to be a paid update as well, but not a lot of information was given on that. Do you guys have any thoughts on uh, what we might expect to see in the uh, upgraded version of the Warthog? So, I mean, there's, I think they, there's, there's still nothing out and they're still working on what can be added, I mean, in add, but um, uh, Snoopy put up a pretty good list on, on, on the forums. Some of it are bug fixes that has not been have not been addressed so far. Some of them are things that everyone would like to see, like the Scorpion uh, helmet modern queuing system or laser mavericks, uh, guided uh, rockets, etc., etc. But we still don't know what we can expect, really. The helmet mounted queuing system would be really cool, especially does it integrate with the uh, the targeting pod as well? Yeah, it does. But uh, from from what, what Snoopy says, that it would need another three uh, D model update of the cockpit. It, which probably is not off limits if, if, uh, if it's a paid update. Well, it'll be interesting to see what we got there. The other thing they mentioned was uh, KA50 Black Shark 3. That's going to have uh, IR Jammer and Ingla air-to-air missiles. That'll be uh, that'll be quite interesting, considering people already shoot people down with, uh, with the current missiles it has right now, but they're air-to-ground. Were those the laser-guided ones? Yeah, the, uh, the Vickers. Vickers. Oh. The Vickers, yeah. yeah. Elgato on Twitch, he shoots down people all the time with Vickers. I don't know how realistic that is, but it's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> That's awesome. And then uh, just to kind of round out the list here and uh, just briefly go over everything else that was listed, they uh, mentioned or they showed screenshots of the P-47D Thunderbolt, the uh, the Mosquito, the Hind. They mentioned uh, the Huey Multicrew. And uh, then they showed off some extra pictures of the supercarrier. And one of those pictures showed, uh, oh, you guys are going to have to help me here. What's the, uh, what's the Russian ship called? Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov. Thank you. I thought that was the charcoal a... briquette. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they showed off screenshots of that. So I guess we're getting that one. And we're also getting World War II carrier in that pack too. Is that right? I think it's the Essex class is coming with the Corsair, and we got the Forestal from Heatblur as well. But I don't think there are any relation to the pack. And and Jello, you're going to be the uh, LSO on the carrier module, aren't you? 
That's correct. You might recognize my voice. I had forgotten about that. <laughs> so you're going to be virtually grading our landings. That's going to that's going to be really great. Which is a job I never did in real life. So that makes it even all the more virtual. <laughs> it's all a simulation. That's right. I'm hoping there's some fun comments for when, when we inevitably screw it all up. <laughs> and we really need it for the Raven One campaign, Joel. Ah, uh, yes. That can't come soon enough then, huh? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Going to be a busy year for ED. And uh, I actually am impressed with the list of stuff. Hopefully they can get a good majority of it out this year. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Okay, let's move on to, uh, to our main topic. Today we have uh, Jello here from the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Most of you, hopefully most of you listening, know him from that. And uh, we brought him in to talk about his experience with uh, flight simulators, uh, both Navy and recently he has gotten into uh, DCS. So welcome, Jello, and thank you for participating. We really appreciate it. Sure thing. So if any of you have uh, questions for Jello or want to expand on something, just go ahead and jump in. Hopefully we don't talk over each other too much. I guess I'll go ahead and uh, you know start things off. In, uh, in the Navy, at least in your experience in the Navy, was were all the simulators that uh, you guys used, were they all static simulators? Do you have any like uh, full motion sims or anything anything less or more less like the experience we can emulate today in uh, DCS world? Well, it's interesting because my very first aircraft was the T-34C Turbo Mentor. And they had a little mock cockpit with all the gauges and everything, but they didn't have any graphics at all. So really, that was just a pure procedures trainer, instrument flying. And, you know, you always thought, okay, I'm going to get in and fly this thing. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. It's, you know, lacking the visuals, which is always a big part of, I would say, any experience. And so that was some, somewhat underwhelming. But for what we were doing at the time, it was important because it helped us to learn everything we need to know about starting the aircraft and then just some, some basic instrument flying, as I said. And then when we got to the T2, which was the trainer I flew first for jets, and now it's gone, uh, it was on great big hydraulic actuators, so it would move quite a bit, and you had to wear your harness just like in the aircraft. But I don't think it had, I don't, at least I don't remember any visuals in it. It just wanted to give you the sense of movement. And so that was very similar where the instructor would just tell you what to do and you'd do it and he could watch. Now in the T-34, of course, he could just look over your shoulder. You're right there. But in the T-2, you had to climb this ladder and go in the thing. And so you were on a headset. And then the A-4, which is the last trainer I flew, was back to the A-4, uh, sorry, T-34 type setup where it was just the mock cockpit and no visuals. And at that point, I guess they just wanted you to just do the instrument procedures. And so, yeah, I mean, that, of course, that was in 93 to 95. So it's been a little while. I'm sure trainers are different today, but that was my initial experience in flight training in the Navy. That's pretty cool. I, I've always heard, uh, you know, with about, I've even seen in museums, some of the, the, the like early, 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 early edition trainers where it's like three steam gauges and a stick and then the canopy comes down and it's completely blacked out and they would use it for, I guess, instrument training or something. But the, I always thought that was really weird because I've always grown up playing simulators on a computer. Like, why wouldn't you just have a screen and be able to look out and see what you're looking at? But I guess that makes sense. 
Well, and it depends on what you need the simulator to do. So this was not for entertainment value. This was mostly for procedures training. And sure. then, of course, you'd go out and do it for real in the airplane with an instructor before you went solo. And so I think it served the purpose. But again, probably all three of those were at least 20 years old by the time I got to them in the early 90s. And so, you know, that's 70s technology. Now, what I didn't mention is then when I got to the F-18 FRS, Fleet Replacement Squadron, then we had different kinds of trainers there. We had one that was a procedures type cockpit like the others. And then we had OFTs and WTTs. And OFTs, I think, were the operational flight trainers and WTTs were weapons tactics trainers. Both still had the mock cockpit, so all the switches and displays and everything were correct. Uh, but the WTT was you were literally inside a big dome. I think of it like being inside a golf ball. And the acoustics were always funny because, of course, it bounces all around. But they had projectors, and they would show you 360 degrees almost. Uh, you wouldn't see straight down, but if you rolled the airplane, you could see whatever was below you. Uh, but it had no motion. And then the OFTs were just pretty much from 180 degrees in front of you, or I should say from straight in front of you to about 180 degrees to the side. So there's nothing behind you, but the imagery was much better. And so you could theoretically practice aerial refueling, although it wasn't the same, or formation flying, uh, whereas the WTT was for maybe air-to-air -air or dropping bombs if the graphic requirements weren't uh, required to be very good. And then as I was leaving, the uh, Navy in the late, you know, 16, 17 range, of course, they had, it was, they, they had done away with the WTTs. They still had OFTs, but the imagery had consistently gotten better. And after a while, they had panels that would close behind you after you got in. So there still was not motion. They never felt that was important, I guess. But the graphics continually got better. And it was far less complicated because instead of a big golf ball, they just had this static trainer that uh, you know was a mock cockpit and then they had panels all around it and a couple of them would open for you to get in and then close once you were in so the imagery definitely got better over the course of my career so jello sport here um would you say though then when you were doing your initial training and stuff like that the the focus of um sort of the the training mentality of the navy was more okay hey let's get these guys you know, we don't want them learning the systems in the airplane itself. Let's get them used to the systems and then we'll throw them in the airplane, teach them how to fly it. And then as you moved in later in your career, sort of cost savings probably took place where maybe we can teach them how to fly the airplane in the sim a little bit more. And then how would you relate that to, say, the airline mentality of training in simulators? I think you're onto something there, Sport. The idea always in training was self-study, instruction, practice, execution. So you had boxes you had to turn green, as it was called, simply meaning you had this syllabus that you'd go through. It was all computerized at the squadron in the training department. And as you completed a level of instruction, which included little demo videos and little interactive exercises you could do with simulated cockpits just with a mouse on the computer that you would finish, let's say, everything to know about computer navigation. And so then you'd go on to radios and then you'd get done with radios and go on to radar or IFF. And so they wanted you to learn all that. And then you'd go to the class with an instructor who was basically one of the lieutenants or captains in the squadron. And they would tell you all about 
okay, hey, so you did this study on the radios and the radar on the IFF. Here's what you need to know. Uh, hey, when you learned this, this is why this is important. And so it just reinforced it. And then you'd get in the simulator, you'd do some basic startups, let's say, and flying around and someone would watch you and talk you through it. And then, yes, eventually you'd get out and jump in. And the first time I ever flew in an F-18, well, that's not totally true. I did get a backseat flight, which was just for fun, frankly. But the first time in my syllabus, I was in the front seat. And so I knew how to start it. I knew how to talk. I knew how to operate it. And I had a backseat instructor. But I think if I recall correctly, uh, he never touched the controls the whole flight. He was just there to make sure I didn't screw anything up, frankly, but also if I had any questions. And of course, that's not too shocking because these days, as was the case with so many aircraft before, but there are no two-seat variants of the F-35. And so when you get in that one for the first time, guess what? You're solo. Uh, so they, they obviously have slightly better fidelity trainers now than we had. Um, but yes, I'll pause on that and then come back to your airline question in case I've triggered any thoughts on that. No, no, that makes a whole lot of sense. Sorry, Baltic, go ahead. Sorry, thanks. So Joe, having, having spent some time in DCS and the, using the VR, uh, how do you compare the, the experience from your later simulators that you did in the, in the Navy, which were a few years back anyway, and what you can get now in, in your home flying uh, DCS? How, how do you find it? I find that DCS is amazingly accurate and realistic, which might be the same synonym. Uh, and, and the procedures you can do, even though you can't flip the actual switches, the startup sequence itself can be the same, the takeoffs, a lot of that can be the same. I would say the biggest detriment to anyone who might suggest using DCS as a replacement is simply that there's not the actual switches that you can flip or turn dials or whatever, as well as the lack of feedback in the controls. And so what I could see, I don't know if we're gonna to get to this later, but maybe like that self-study, if people were to have DCS, uh, not by people, but you know, just the students were to have DCS and, and available to practice at home, it might be good just to be able to say, okay, you know, it's, it's not necessarily important that I flip the actual APU switch, but I know where it is. And I know that it's this switch before the crank switch. And then after it's over, I should expect to see it turn off. So that when you do get to your simulator, you'll be that much more proficient because you've seen it. So I think of batting practice, right? So uh, you can sit there and just swing over and over and over at a fastball and then do a slider and then do a change up or whatever. And so I, I think there is some value. And I definitely like how realistic it is in the visuals and the accuracy of the cockpit. but the flying itself could theoretically, I think, for a new pilot, be a little bit negative training simply because the feel is not the same. And of course, there's no seat of the pants. But now, to be fair, all the simulators, except for the T2 that I just described, also did not have seat of the pants. But I guess they just felt that that wasn't necessary because that could be added later and it wouldn't overwhelm the students. Zillow, uh, Dutt here. Two questions for you. Um, I know you're in the airlines now. So first question, when you taxi in or fly the sim of your airliner, how does, does do you get any kind of like motion sick? Like when I'm trying to park a simulator, <laughs> I always feel like I'm going to puke. Like I, everything's fine. We can do stalls. <laughs> we can do steep turns, whatever. But when I'm trying to actually park at the gate, that's where I feel like the worst. So did you get any kind of like uh, that from the airline sim? And also, did you get anything like that from the military style sim? 
I mean, there are some similarities in so much as the airliner uh, training that I've done uh, with my company has the cockpit mock-ups where you can sit in the actual cockpit and then there'll be an instructor there and you can flip switches and turn dials and do everything you need to do. And then at some point you go to a motion and visual simulator where you can go through the flying maneuvers and procedures and all that. And so in that regard, I found similarities between them. Yes. I never suffered any, Oh, motion sickness or any issues like that in my airliner training uh, for, for historical purposes though i will mention that i did in my very first t-34 flight ever i did get sick uh, i had to use my bag second one got sick didn't have to use the bag third flight eh, felt a little queasy fourth flight was fine and then took a month off between t-34s and t-2s and was a little queasy again and all the way through my career if I didn't fly for a while or if I was ever in the back seat as an instructor or just going along somewhere to uh, move a jet, let's say, and the other guy was flying, that I would still get a little queasy at times. Uh, but I never suffered that in the airlines. And the only last time I felt it, honestly, was when I was out visiting Matt, Matt Wagner when we did our Fighter Pilot Podcast episode on DCS. And I had on the something, um, I guess it was the VR, and he he tended to say it was the frame rate that was kind of throwing my eyes off. So I'll tend to stick with that because it makes me yeah. feel better. Um, but I, I do have a setup here at the house now and I've not felt anything like it. So I don't know if it's a different setup or if it was just, I've, I've done it now a little bit more, not a whole lot, but some, and that, uh, that it's, it's not that hard. So yeah. And the motion simulator for the airliners, you know, it does tilt you up and back. And if anyone's ever seen it, you can just Google it and you can see it's on about, I would say 20 foot, hydraulic piston stilts, if you will, and it can move quite far. And that's how it fools your brain. Just like if you ever go to rides at theme parks where you don't actually move, but it feels like you are, you're just tilting forward or back. It's uh, very similar to that. And, and uh, yeah, there was definitely some similarities. Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, and also earlier you talked about refueling. I think uh, everybody that plays DCS can agree that one of the most hard, most challenging and hard things to do in the sim is uh, re aerial refueling. So could you walk us through kind of what they would teach you and how you would use your sim in the Navy and then how that would differ uh, when you actually got to fly? Like, did you find it harder in the sim vice uh, going to fly the real thing, real airplane? Um, what was your, uh, what was your opinions on that? I, to be honest, I don't remember the initial in-flight refueling training at VMFAT 101, which is the squadron I went to, even though it's a Marine squadron, I was Navy, we would train each other. So I spent a year in El Toro in Orange County, Southern California before it closed. It was the best year of my life. I had a great time. And uh, so I, I don't remember if we did simulators. My guess is that we did. And it was underwhelming, which is part of the reason I don't remember. But to be fair, it's been 25-ish years. And so my guess is they would give you the, again, the, you know, you turn the boxes green, you'd have a lecture and then you'd probably have a simulator. And the simulator is mostly for the rendezvous practice and getting in position. And then they probably said, okay, at this point, you'll do this for real out in the airplane because it's going to be negative training if we do it here. And then you would detach from the tanker and fly away uh, and correctly, not like was demonstrated in Japan a year ago when we had a tragedy, uh, but often to the right and below the tanker and then off you go. And then I do remember though, you know, my initial 
trainer flights in an actual airplane where you'd go out and do it. And at that point, of course, you're just jousting with the tanker to try to get the probe in the basket because the Navy and Marine Corps do it differently than the Air Force. And so that can be quite colorful for people doing it for the first time. But what's valuable about that and why I think they don't have you do it in the simulator is you have the seat of the pants. So you have the rumble of the air over the uh, canopy. You have the sound and closure and view of the tanker you're flying off. And you have the ability to know that when you pull up just a little bit, you can kind of feel yourself in your, again, seat of the pants going up or going down. And so it tends to make your control inputs a little more dampened at that point because you've been flying for so long. I mean, you don't do tanking your first month in flight training ever, right? You do it after your winged aviator and you've been going through the F-18, in my case, training for a good four or five months maybe. And so it, it can be a hazardous activity because if you lip the basket and it comes back and whacks the airplane, you can damage an AOA probe or you can damage the actual refueling probe itself or even put a crack in your canopy, all of which are, uh, are very dangerous. And so I, I think I think they just put us through the procedures in the simulator and then had us go out and do it where you have the real life feel and uh, speed and and results uh, right there available to you. Sweet. Thanks, Jello. Hey, Jello, it's Rob. I've got a quick question for you. So when you're looking at um, like going from a shore station, so let's say you're going to take a, a duty station that was non-flying. What was the process, or did you go back in the sims to get back up to speed and get proficient in the aircraft? Yes. So if you spent, let's say, a couple, three years at the Pentagon or something non-flying, then they would give you a various, there, there's various syllabi at the FRS, depending on the student. And so when I went through VMFAT 101, I was a CAT 1, which is a winged student pilot just got winged and now he's learning the F-18 for the very first time. Well, let's say I were my former co-host Sunshine who went and flew the S-3 first and he would have gone through a Cat-1 at that training squadron, but then later gets picked up for the F-18. Well, then he would come to that squadron and get a Cat-2, meaning he's already been through an FRS, but it's a different airplane. So now it's almost everything the Cat-1 does, but a little bit different. Then to your point, if I've been out of the cockpit for a while, but I need some training before I go back to the fleet, that would be a cat three. And then a cat four is what I received when I knew the F-18 Hornet for so long. And in fact, was flying it at the time, but then they decided I was going to be qualified in the Super Hornet. And so even though I was current and flying and everything else, I went over to, at that time, VFA 122 in Lemoore, and they put me through a very short, like two weeks syllabus of, hey, here are the differences. Here's a couple simulators, go out and fly it. I think I did one dual flight in a Super Hornet before I did a solo flight. And then they just want you to build a few hours on a couple solo flights. And then they give you a NATOPS check, as it's called, and then off you go. And so, yes, they will have different syllabi for you depending on your situation. And then they'll put you in cohorts and try to put you through together if they can. Gotcha. Thanks. So I have a follow-up to that. If um, you, it's interesting hearing you talk about getting you know work back up into the airplane and whatnot, but um, I guess for me, when a new module in DCS comes out, one of the hardest things is knowing where to start to to learn it. Um, I kind of pull upon some of my real-world experience learning different airplanes and it, trying to apply it. But um, you know, for me, looking at other 
some of the content creators that we have here right now, uh, particularly Jabbers and Redkite, they put together some very good tutorials on new modules. Um, and that is helpful, but how did the Navy approach learning a new jet when you got checked out in it? Um, you know, drawing from your experience in the F-18 and F-16, um, and then how much, how long did that sort of period take? How, how long was the school, the training to, to learn a new aircraft? Well, it depends on where you are. So for example, in T-34, I mean, they're taking people who've maybe never flown before and now they have to start from scratch. And so they have to build into the syllabus a lot of time for, hey, this guy's just not getting this one maneuver, whatever it may be. It could be landings. It could be uh, an engine out procedure for single engine aircraft. They do that quite often. And so uh, I guess maybe the F-16 is a good example, not only because it's the newest in my mind, having just gone through it in 2013, but also because there's some expertise there that's expected. So uh, as I have some fun on social media, uh, not everybody understands that the Navy has F-16s, but we do. And there are 14 of them based in Fallon, Nevada, about an hour east of Reno. And when they first got F-16s this time, and I say that deliberately because the Navy had F-16Ns back in the 80s, and then they went away in the early 90s, and they were without F-16s until 2002. And from 2002 until, I don't know, a few years, they would rely on the Air Force to train them. And then at some point, the Navy and Marine Corps up in Fallon said, hey, we can do this ourselves. It'll be a lot easier, cheaper, et cetera. And so they created the syllabus. They got their own simulator and they had instructors that were proficient enough that they frankly were just students uh, maybe two years before, but now they've been flying it enough that they can turn around and instruct. And so that what happens is when I, I'll just give you my own experience. When I arrived in Fallon for the second time, this was in early 2013. I was there in 2000 to 2002, uh, way back when. And what they decided was who's going to go through. And so I was selected. And so they said, okay, so here's what you need to do. You need to do some self-study. And really what you're doing there is you're learning systems. So hydraulics, flight controls, engines, uh, survival uh, systems, and I'm probably missing a whole bunch. And then at some point, you will have some lectures similar to what I described before. And then you'll have a handful of simulators where you will actually, no kidding, start the thing, taxi it around, fly it, and then you know have you go through some maneuvers and then you come back. And I want to say there was maybe... 10, 20 hours, maybe probably not quite 20 hours of self-study, but you know, maybe 10 hours of self-study and then a week of academics where you're in lectures pretty much all day with breaks and lunch and then a week of simulators and then a couple weeks of flying. And of course, the flying syllabus is at the whims of if the F-16s are needed for other missions and what the weather is doing, et cetera. Uh, of course, the time of year, because if it's winter, then the days are shorter, so you can't get as many flights in with the same jets. They only have four two-seat Bs, of which maybe only two at any one time are up. And so, theoretically, if you started January 1st in the syllabus, you should be done and ready to go by the middle of March. and or Sorry, February, so about six weeks later. And then what they want you to do is they want you to fly in the F-16 as an adversary, 
in whether it's Top Gun or Air Wing or whatever missions there in Fallon. And then once you have built up enough hours, I think it was about 25 total hours, then they would come back and put you through the BFM syllabus. So they didn't want you dogfighting until you had a few more hours. And so once you got through the dogfighting syllabus, then you were considered full up. You could do anything there was to do in the F-16. And then at some point, if you had over 100 hours, then you might get a post-maintenance check flight qualification so that you could help maintenance. And then after about 125 hours or so, then they might ask you to be an instructor and you would turn around and instruct the guys behind you. And I'll tell you, that part was kind of interesting because you knew it reasonably well, but not super well. And so it required you to get back in the books, which is always a good thing. And so they had to answer your question more uh, abbreviated here, they had a defined syllabus for these are the things you're going to learn. This is the lockstep you're going to go through. And then here's the end state is you'll be at this point and then you come back, do some BFM and then you're done. And then at some point we'll invite you back to be an instructor. Very cool. So um, question for you on your training from F-18 to F-16. Um, I've been acquiring a lot of different flight sticks and and things over the years. And uh, one of the things that I just acquired is uh, a company called Real Simulator. They think they're out of Spain, makes a, it's called an FSSB, so force sensing stick base. Um, it's basically the equivalent of what you would use or have in the F-16. So it's completely force sensing and there is no moving part. When you moved from so many hours on the F-18 over to the F-16, did did that stick cause you any trouble or was it pretty natural or did it take you a while to get used to? How how was that transition? It was not difficult. And it's an interesting situation because everybody asks that question. And by everybody, I simply mean all the young students that are relatively young uh, are going to go through the syllabus after, you know, at least a thousand hours generally in F-18s that they would all have that very same question. And the answer that I gave, which was the answer was given to me, which is true, is yeah, you'll get used to it, which sounds very noncommittal and, and a little bit of a, a, a wave off, you know. But the truth is, at that point, the people that are going through this have done all the flight training, so a couple hundred hours there, plus a whole fleet tour of three years. So that's at least one deployment, maybe two on a carrier, and then probably close to a thousand hours, hopefully, in an 18, let's say. And then they've been at the Fallon base for a couple months and they're still flying there. And so it's, I guess, I don't, I don't really know how to answer it from a physiological, mental point of view, other than you know that a stick does certain things. And so you just have to reprogram yourself. And so by the time you've studied it for a week on your own and then sat through a week of lectures and then a week of simulators, it, by the time I got in the jet, I honestly don't remember it being a big deal, even on the first flight. And again, I remember uh, my instructor, Pat Blair, is a good friend of mine. Um, I flew the whole flight, uh, single engine, first time F-16. And I think he might have taken the controls once to demo the high altitude engine loss uh, simulated flame out thing that we do, just because I wasn't quite getting that. But from the point of view of had he not been there, I could have flown the thing. And I think the biggest change for me was later in BFM you have a feeling in the F-18, like, okay, the stick is this far back. I bet you I'm almost to the end. Oh, yep, there it is. You know, you hit the stop and then you have an idea if you don't already hear the angle of attack tone screaming at you. Uh, in the F-16, I found that in BFM, I would be against the stop because the, the F-16 and the Block 15s we flew, the stick did 
the, the stick of the F-16, Block 15s, it did move a little bit, but not very much. It was just maybe a quarter of an inch and then it would stop. And I found myself almost breaking the dang thing off because I just wanted more. And part of that was the fact that the F-16 will take you to about 25 units of AOA and it's done. It doesn't matter how hard you pull. And that was hard for me to get used to. So I found it more difficult to get used to changing how I fought the F-16 than how I flew it. I found that came fairly naturally. Uh, and the only other difference was after a month of flying nothing but the F-16, I found that I, when I got back in the F-18, I had already subconsciously reached over to the right when I wasn't looking, trying to find the stick. And I said, oh yeah, it's between my knees. And then later after flying the F-18 a little bit, I'd get in the F-16 and I'd reach between my knees for the stick and it wasn't there. And so you just had to reprogram yourself for where it was. And it was never a problem for me. And I don't know anyone who had a problem with it, frankly. Uh, just a real quick question Question about that. Um, when you mentioned that you get a week's worth of sim time, is that normally uh, a full day or is it just a, a week on the syllabus where you may spend a couple hours before studying and in the sim and then debriefing? Or how does that normally work? It's more like the second thing because you'll go through a class with maybe six or eight folks. And so in a given day, there's only so many simulators well, there's only one simulator, but there's only so many instructors. And so the simulator will run all day, but they'll cycle students through it. And so uh, on week two, so on week one, you've told the command, hey, don't bother these guys. We need them to concentrate on their studies because it's a full days of academics. And then week two, you might have a simulator from two to four, let's say. And of course, you want to know the procedures before you go. So you chair fly it, think about it, study but in the morning, truthfully, you're getting caught up on everything that happened while you're gone because emails still come in. The you know boss still sends you taskers. Other people still ask you questions. And so there's work to be done. And, and you just have to balance your time. And then you, know, you get in the simulator. And if you're struggling with something, they might see if there's time at the end of the day for you to come back and try it again. Or they'll do it again the next day when you have the next simulator. They'll say, hey, let's try that one maneuver again. But for the most part, you get a couple hours a day in the second week. For a simulator. Gotcha. Thanks. Uh, and then <clears throat> for a lot of the simulators, do they, and I think you mentioned there's an instructor, is there, are there two parts to the sim? I know certainly this was the case many moons ago, but uh, where you actually have somebody controlling the simulator where they set up the scenario for you and so to run through it or how does it, how does it work? Is it that sophisticated? Yeah, absolutely. So each one of them, even all the way back to the T-34 would have a computer interface that the instructor would use and in that would have to learn the system as part of being an instructor of, okay, you open this software, you click on this to initialize the simulator. And then what do you want the student to do? If it's cold and dark, then you click on that. A lot like DCS, frankly. If you want to be in flight because we're just going to practice something else, then you can initialize it to that. And then, of course, you just need to make sure that all the physical switches in the simulator are where you want them to be. So if it's on the ground with the engines off, well, guess what? The landing gear handle needs to be down. Otherwise, as soon as they unfreeze it, it's just going to freak out or crash or whatever. And so... At that point, the instructor could then hit run, the simulator would run, and then the interface would allow the instructor to input maybe an emergency, if that's what you were doing, or, or some bad guys that are out there that you can shoot, or a tanker, or a target, or maybe even surface to air missiles that are shooting at you, depending on what simulator you're doing. And so, yes, there was an interface that needed to be learned by the instructors, and usually it didn't take them long because they were fairly intuitive. 
Gotcha, thanks. Uh, red, cut yellow. Um, our HOTAS controls at home are often quite simple without, say, detents or variable resistance or extensions, which makes them potentially quite limiting. You were talking about feedback from uh, aircraft and how they feel to fly. How would you say your experience in a simulator versus the real aircraft is affected by this kind of loss of uh, feedback or the controls limitations themselves? And do you find certain tasks harder or easier with the simulator versus real life? I think that's part of the reason, Red Kite, that they only do certain syllabus flights in the simulator because they know that either it can't be properly duplicated or it could actually be negative training, as I've expression I've used, which simply means you might find a workaround subconsciously that is not what you want to do in real life. And so I found that for, for me, just knowing where the switches were and the hands-on throttle and stick buttons and the way things move, there were there were definitely times throughout my career where I would remember, uh, or I do remember an instructor saying, that's a sim-ism. So that was just a phrase we coined, meaning, okay, that wasn't supposed to happen. And some of it, frankly, you know, could be a little unnerving. Like you might be doing an air-to-air -air intercept and all of a sudden both firelights come on. Now in real life, that could certainly happen. But, you know, there, you know, I never knew if like, okay, do you want me to deal with that? Or are we doing air-to-air -air training? And so, you know, it was very often to say, oh, ignore that. That's a simism. And so, again, as with, I think, most things in life, you get to a point where you get enough proficiency and experience where you just you just kind of know. And again, that's a bit of a cop-out. But I'm reading this book right now, and it's talking about they did a study with police officers, and they were putting them in front of this full floor-to-ceiling display, and they would show a guy who had a bomb under his jacket, and brand new police officers didn't recognize it, didn't do the right things, but the senior ones recognized it right away. And what the book was talking about was it's amazing that if you ask those senior police officers what it was, they, they, they had a hard time putting a, you know, I just, I don't know. It was the way he was walking or the way he was looking around or, or the bulge in his jacket. And so all that to say that th there comes a point where in anything people do, they build that sixth sense. You know, you've also heard it called the 10,000 hours. Of course, that's certainly not the case in, in flying. Uh, almost no military pilot gets that, but you do have so many more thousands of hours thinking about it, simulating, et cetera, that you get to a point where you have that proficiency to do it. And then so you can rule in or out different things that a simulator may do so that when you get out there for real, you can adapt what you need and ignore what you don't. And so I thought the military simulators were great for that. And they did have the artificial feel, for example, at high AOA or slow speeds. Uh, and again, I would say that to me is one limitation of DCS, for example, is that until they come up with a system, and maybe they do and I'm not aware of it, but where they can have the game talk back to the stick base uh, that you, maybe even the the rudders, uh, not so much the throttles, that you know, I, I think that would be a, a handy thing to have. For people like me, I mean, for gamers who start off in DCS, maybe it's not a big deal to them because that's what they know and they can adapt to it pretty easily. I think uh, I think that's something that we're all actually looking forward to the 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 stick base giving you feedback, or in the game world, it's called force feedback, and I, the actual force feedback has been the the uh, trade not the trademark, but the help me out with this guys what's called patent. Thank you. The patent was actually owned by a company that didn't make joysticks for a very long time, 10 plus years. 
and that actually just expired. And so we actually might see that in the sim world again uh, pretty soon. I know there's actually a couple companies working on it. So, um, you know, that, I would hope might... they could because if you think about it, in an F18, for example, you only have a direct mechanical linkage to the horizontal stabilators, and that's as a backup tertiary fallout if you have other degradations in your flight controls. And so the point I'm simply trying to make is that somewhere the logic already exists that if the flight parameters are X, then we're going to put Y into the stick. And so it's all digital already. I don't think it'd be that hard to figure out how to do it from that point of view. But yeah, for a system for game that is also cost effective, that could be a little bit difficult, uh, different maybe. But yeah, it should exist. I, I wouldn't think it'd be that difficult to get that software or, or whatever you know coding Adelos, uh, real quick it's interesting to hear you say rudders does that is that a thing when you're doing bfm a lot of rudder uh, travel when you're in against the limits absolutely uh okay. and, and and i was i'm actually glad you didn't ask me what i was afraid you were going to ask me because i was searching my brain for it and i'll go ahead and put myself on report i don't remember if the rudders have feedback or not like the stick does uh, maybe someone can help us out, uh, but I, I think maybe they do. But oh yes, absolutely. In fact, in a slow speed scissors, let's say, where both aircraft are real cocked up, slow, it's almost a, a race, but you don't want to win. Uh, if the guy mm -hmm. flushes out in front of you, then you can shoot him kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then a lot of times you actually want to lead with the rudders and then use a little bit of stick because it just makes the, the turn uh, and the maneuvering so much cleaner, which I always thought just on a quick tangent was a little strange because it's already, as I like to say, fly by vote anyway in the F-18. I mean, you put the stick input in and the F-18 doesn't just give you aileron. It's going to say, okay, what are we doing and what does he want? All right, well, I'll give him a little of this, a little of that. And so I always wondered, well, why didn't they just program it so that what I do with my rudders, I could have just done with a stick and it gives me the same result. But uh, alas, they did not. And maybe there's a reason I'm just not aware of. It's a good point, though. Yeah. But yeah, the rudders were it, very useful. Maybe it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the pilot figured out afterwards it's just better to do it this way, whereas the engineer thought it was better to do it the other. So rumor has it, rumor has it that uh, when they were developing the Airbus, which is the plane that Tricker and I fly, uh, that you could, have, they could have just put a Rio stick like, or a Rio stat, you know, like well, a light switch in your house when you, you know, gently want to turn the lights up or off. Or whatever, but uh, they're like you could just see the flight engineers or the pilots going, uh, "This this will never work. We're not going. This you can't use like light switches for <laughs> thrust levers." Yeah, well, you gotta have a pilot feel like a pilot, at least while there are still pilots. After a while, I guess it won't matter. Absolutely. So, uh, most of us, I think, pretty much all of us have at least played DCS for over a year. Um, I, I myself, it's been four or five years now, uh, maybe some of you guys a little bit longer, but one of the things I always struggle with when making YouTube content in general is that beginner aspect. I have not been a beginner for four to five years now. And so, you know, I hear people say, oh, you should, you should do an episode on this. I'm like, well, that's easy. I just do this. And I, it's kind of something that's, you know, second nature to me almost, almost, uh, all the time. So now that you've kind of gotten your feet wet into DCS, do you have anything that maybe the community could do better in providing helpful resources or information on on things that maybe you got stuck with or things that you don't quite understand or um, any anything related to that in DCS world? Oh, I, first off, I would say I don't know that my whole foot is wet. I think it's still the tip of my toe that I've dipped in. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm still trying to build in the time 
to be able to explore it enough to be able to answer that question. Um, just for example, even knowing which controls on my keyboard will allow me to do what in the airplane, because I know from over 3000 hours in an F-18, what switch does what in the jet. But I was trying to figure out, for example, when I first got it, all right, well, how do I put the landing gear down? And I finally realized, well, wait, what if I just take the mouse and put it over on the landing gear and click it down and duh, it worked. So, um, I think this could be maybe part of the show is that we could on a parallel universe, if you will, kind of watch my progression through as I learn more about this and what things maybe are missing. Uh, but to your point, obviously a lot of that, I already have the benefit of understanding. So we, we almost need like someone who's brand new to all of this that we could shadow through to, uh, help answer that question. But, um, no, I, I'm, I'm just, just getting going and, uh, I haven't really even explored where information is, although I do know from interactions with you previously, Jabbers, that I know you've got some videos out there. I know Matt Wagner's got some as well. And so if I wanted to know, for example, how to start the F-18, then I'm sure a quick Google or YouTube search would probably present several of those. And yeah, w- would it be nice if someone had, and maybe it exists and I just don't know, a, hey, new to F-18 DCS, you know, start here. And then it would just kind of take you through a syllabus kind of thing. Um, but lacking that, I think whatever a person wants, the internet these days is so good. I'm guessing a quick search could probably present the information. Yeah, most people aren't going to have uh, Jabbers and Matt Wagner on on uh, speed dial. Well, true, but, but they have them on <laughs> YouTube. Uh, yeah. But I, I do like that idea. I think that'd be a, a lot of fun to sort of the the DCS education of Jello. <laughs> Maybe so. Hey, uh, Jello Trigger here. I don't want to take it back to the. I mean, this is some great discussion right here, uh, talking about new stuff for people. Uh, I kind of want to talk about like the force feedback. I want to take it back to that and talk about like G tolerance. So, is there anything like in the Navy sim world or anything like that that prepares you for? pulling G's and stuff like that. I know you guys have the G warm up for like real world flying, but is there anything for like Sims and then relating that to DCS? I'm not sure if you had any experience with this at all, but do you think the G tolerance is too low, too high pros and cons, stuff like that? Um, do you have any feedback on G tolerance? I'll start with that one. Cause that's relatively easy. I, in the little bit, I've been flying the TF 51 and the F 18. It does seem like the G tolerance is a little low, uh, but to be fair, it reminds me of a day where I'm maybe dehydrated and tired and didn't get good sleep. And my G tolerance is just lower because as we talked about on episode six of my show, that there are days where you're just not going to have as much proficiency as you do on other days. And I think that's probably true for anything, but physiologically, it's definitely true. And so to me, it just seems like a really bad day of G tolerance. So I don't know if that's changeable. I haven't explored it yet, but it does seem to black out a little too easily, frankly. Um, when you get into the jet training before you get to, I don't know if it's before or when they do it now, but everybody has to go through the centrifuge. And so you already learn the techniques for the anti-G straining maneuver, which I actually had my guest, uh, Susan J do on that episode. And it's a lot like bearing down if you're trying to take care of a physiological need, either on the toilet or in birthing, I presume. And so the idea, of course, is that you're tensing everything, uh, not so much to expel something the other direction, but to 
propel the blood and keep it up into your brain. And I'm trying to be uh, gentle here. And so they, they will tell you how to do it and they'll have you do it sitting at 1G in a classroom. And it's kind of embarrassing, frankly, but you know, it's just to, to get the idea of it. And then you do it in the centrifuge and you get a video of yourself and they'll debrief you and then you can get back in it and do it again. And so they'll hone that ability. Uh, in the simulator itself, military simulators, there's nothing you can do. You can pull nine G's or seven and a half G's and it doesn't gray out on you like DCS and it doesn't do anything to your actual physical body there. It's just something you do and you know that you'll just have to bear down when you get out there. And then when you go out and you fly, then if you have a challenge with it, then you'll get debriefed by an instructor and they'll ask you to demonstrate the maneuver again. And, you know, in the F-18, unfortunately, if you pass out, you might still get killed. I don't know if it's coming for the F-18, but I know in the F-16, something like 17 or 18 saves with the auto ground collision avoidance system uh, that they've installed for pilots who pass out due to high Gs and the aircraft will auto recover and it's, it's saved some lives and that's a good thing. So people were resistant to that at first pilots were, and now I think they've made believers out of them. So, uh, no, you just, you learn about it, you demonstrate it in the centrifuge and then you go out and do it in real life. Very cool. You said that the pilots were against it at first. Like why would they be against it? they think they're better than that and it won't happen to them and if they're flying low and they want to do certain maneuver that they don't want the jet to take over and do something else they want to they want to be able to fly it i mean if you think back to right a, a basic p51 again i'll just use that one uh it's what cables and pulleys and ailerons and rudders and stick i mean what you give is what you get you can overstress the airplane you can pull it apart you can crash it you can do all these things uh well modern day you know, the aircraft will only let you do certain things. It's a lot like cars, right? Now they have anti-lock brakes and, you know, it'll even stop for you if you're not paying attention from hitting the guy in front of you. And so drivers and pilots these days are not like in the old days where it was a direct mechanical linkage from your brain to your hand, to the stick, to the throttles, to the flight controls. And what you asked for is what you got. And these days, it's it's not quite like that. And so I think that was the last bastion of people resisting any involvement with computers. And I, I think it's been proven both in jets and in cars that a lot of times computers can do it better. Not always, but most of the time. No, I get you. I just wanted to clarify that. But uh, so also going back to the Gs, uh, when you're pulling like high Gs in the F-18 or F-16, um, does it get pretty loud like in the cockpit, like through your helmet or anything? Like, does it get really loud? Because I know there's like a lot of vapes coming off the wings and stuff like that, which is always pretty cool. Not always. I mean, if you're at 500 knots and you're going to pull max G, you know, you're going to bleed your airspeed down. But it's it's the noise is really a function of the airspeed going by. So you might already be pretty fast. And so you've got the noise from that as you slow down then it may actually theoretically get a little quieter. But as you get to higher angles of attack, then a lot of the airflow separation off the airframe itself and the wings can cause a bit of rumble and that can add some airframe noise back into it. So the yeah, the noise seems to be a function of speed and angle of attack. And it's probably quietest in the mid ranges there, right around corner speed where you're, you're not going as fast as you know you might otherwise be, but you don't also have quite as much airflow separation over the airframe. Very cool. Thanks for answering that. Norris. Jello, do you find uh, yourself accidentally using the Hick maneuver when you play DCS? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, no, but 
two, two things. Number one, I haven't done a whole lot of G pulling yet. Uh, but number two, um, <laughs> what was the second thing? Yeah, mostly I just haven't been pulling a lot of Gs. I, I've been trying to land on the carrier, which I've found is not much better than I used to be before anyway. Um, and uh, I haven't I haven't had another aircraft out there I've tried to fight yet, but no, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe we'll have to make that happen. Well, awesome. This has been really cool. Does anybody else have anything else to uh, to ask? I was just going to uh, ask a quick question. I know that uh, the the good folks over at Thrustmaster were nice enough to send you uh, some of the gear. Has that been helpful in in getting to play DCS? Was that a, a good bridge? My gosh, yes. Uh, frankly, I think if I had to start from scratch on my own, the uh, level of effort might have sort of overwhelmed me. But uh, lo and behold, things started showing up at my door, and now I'm proud to say I've got the. Uh, throttles. I think it's the A10 throttles, uh, but they're you know adaptable. And then I got the A10 Warthog base, and then the F18 stick that showed up with it, as well as the uh, rudder pedals, as we talked about. And it's yeah, it's great to fly. I actually do enjoy it. I'm kind of surprised at myself. I didn't know that I would so much, but it's fun. And the good news is uh, we had everyone over for Thanksgiving. We had to celebrate a day early because I had to fly on Thanksgiving, unfortunately. But I. Um, I was able to get my brother in there who's always been a big fan of my career and he loved it. I've had him in the military simulators before, so he really enjoyed it. And uh, my 12 year old actually really enjoys it as well. So it's, it's a lot of fun and who knows? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, my youngest child there, the 12 year old uh, who enjoys flying it, both the TF 51 and the F 18, you know, none of my three sons have ever particularly been, overwhelmed with aviation. I know some kids are absolutely cuckoo for it. And I, I always attribute it to the fact that they grew up around it. So for them, it wasn't quite as exquisite or exclusive. You know, they came out and walked me to my jet many a times when they were just wee lads. And so I don't think for them, it's as big a deal. But the fact that my youngest enjoys the flying of it, who knows, maybe one of them yet will follow my footsteps. I think that's one of the really cool aspects of where the simulator world is now, especially given that we have, uh, you know, VR, uh, and it's relatively easy to come by as opposed to what it was just five years ago. Um, you know, I've had people over to my house and say, Hey, check this out and throw the VR headset on. And you know, the, the expression and awe on the faces is totally worth all of it. Yeah, for sure. And the, the equipment is so good. It really does feel like, you know, we did a stick review on YouTube on our channel of the Thrustmaster stick. And I know I'm not the first one to do it, but I just wanted to throw out there a few comments on Thrustmaster, how well they got so many of the points and adapted it as they had to for the game. But otherwise, it feels just like the stick I spent over 3,000 hours holding and flying. And so, yeah, I'm really impressed with their, their quality and their workmanship and everything they do and look forward to what else they might put out in the future. Very cool. All right. Well, if, unless any of you guys have anything else to add or ask, um, I think that's pretty much it for us. Oh, hey, Jabbers, just a question for you. I, you know, you touched on it at the beginning, but for those who show back up for episode two and beyond, uh, what else can they expect to hear about? I mean, I was glad to be here today, but who do you think would be some future guests coming on the show in the future? Uh, I know we have talked to Chuck, uh, Chuck Owl from Chuck's Guides to come on and explain what he does and how he does it and anything else he wants to add. Um, I know that we're going to have our very own BD 
Walter Dragon, uh, do some episodes about mission making, and uh, maybe we can get some other mission makers on to uh, discuss that with him. And uh, I don't know, anybody else have anything they want to hear about? It would be really cool uh, feedback to hear. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll throw out there for you that a friend of mine who just retired from the Navy was the lead simulator overseer in Lemoore before he retired. And so I assume that meant the F-35 as well. And so he asked me for a letter of recommendation from the airline. So maybe I can cash in the favor and see if he'd be willing to come on the show and talk about the latest and greatest because my information I provided today is dated by a little bit. So maybe he can talk about where F-35 sims are and what's coming in the future. That'd be cool. That would be really, really cool. But you ha you'll have to get him into the DCS first, Joe, so he can... can ah, good point. Back. <laughs> well, Jabbers, just want to say thank you for having us. Um, I can speak for myself, but uh, the Alert 5 podcast really appreciates being a part of this as well. Absolutely. I'm glad you guys could uh, could join in. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, we, like we said in the beginning, we, I really want this to become uh, a community-driven thing, not so much about me or uh, anybody else here. But, you know, we get we get the, the community involved. Well, we'll have to find some YouTubers and some time and um uh you know other various like like we said we're gonna get chuck in here maybe he can be a uh, panel member too on a future episode and um, we'll just kind of turn this into something that the community is completely involved in um as opposed to uh you know just just me talking or 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 whatever almost a podcast discord in a sense huh Got like a running commentary and conversation exactly well let me know if i can help again oh we'll, we'll bring do. you back and uh, just just one note, uh, in, in case uh, uh, I do know, if I recall correctly, that the Fighter Pilot Podcast has its own uh, uh, DCS server uh, put up a, a while back. So I, I believe that's still working, but uh, I think that's open to the public. Yes, it is. And uh, I got to make some changes. I've been with the holidays and everything. I've been slacking, but um, we're gonna we're gonna throw up. There's been a few requests on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Discord to add a new tanker, and um, I don't even think I added the JF-17. I've been so busy, uh, but we'll get those on there, and we'll get some of the requests that people have, uh, you know, put out there in the server and uh, make it better as we go. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you all, and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode, and uh, hopefully we can get a lot of you guys back uh, in future episodes. Thanks, Jabbers. Yep. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jabbers. Yeah, Chase. Thanks uh, a lot. All right. See you guys later. Thanks for listening to Air Combat Sim. Don't forget to subscribe or tell a friend about it. You have a question, idea for an episode, or a special guest you'd like us to invite? Feel free to reach out on Facebook, Discord, or via email. Air Combat Sim was brought to you by BVR Productions.
So basically the uh, show outline, so to speak, will be, I guess we gotta skip that. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I lost my place. We're not even that far along. This is going to go really well. <laughs> Don't worry, man. <laughs> we all have to start this once. And this yeah, is the hardest yeah, time. Thank you. Just, you should have seen uh, <laughs> our first time. What was it? It was like, oh. now, go, now, go, go, go. <laughs> awesome.